Tonight, how the wage gap could be destroying America. In his provocative new book, How to Pay, author Michael Lind argues that our biggest problems, from political polarization to the growing culture wars, are rooted in organized labor's decline and the wage suppression that followed. We take a closer look at the wage gap in America as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. The decline in family formation and social connection and a politics inflamed by cultural wars and conflicts over racial and gender identity are crises that many Americans have come to believe are shaking the country to its foundations. In his new book, best-selling author Michael Lynn argues that these dystopian trends are worsened, if not caused, by a more fundamental crisis, low wages. And he further argues that contrary to conventional wisdom, low wages are not caused by the irresistible market forces of a global economy, but rather by the systematic destruction of the bargaining power of American workers by the country's elite. And joining us now to talk about his new book, Hell to Pay, how the suppression of wages is destroying America is Michael Lynn. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Michael, you open your book with an excerpt from Frederick, Frederick Douglass' 1871 article um, on cheap labor, which shows that employers exploiting workers uh, is nothing new to American labor history. So what is different about the exploitation of workers in America today? Well, actually, some of the forms of exploitation that American reformers uh, campaigned against in the 19th century, like indentured servitude, that is bringing in foreign workers who are bound to a single employer, uh, this is alive and well, and it's growing with every congressional session. Uh, the uh, H-1B visa program uh, for tech workers, the H-2A so-called guest worker program for agricultural labor, these are exactly the sort of indentured servant programs that uh, labor reformers battled after abolishing chattel slavery in the United States. Uh, the other thing we find is uh, the near extinction of organized labor in the private sector in the United States, it survives in the public sector, but organized labor as a share of private sector workers has collapsed from about a third of the private sector workforce to 6% and falling today which is lower than it was under Herbert Hoover uh, before the New Deal. So I think in many ways, we're seeing a regression uh, to labor practices, which people in 1950, 1960 thought were things of the past. So we're going to talk about all the practices that employers are carrying out, have been carrying out, are still carrying out in order to destroy the labor movement and to uh, 
suppress wages in a moment. But first of all, um, as you summarize it in your book, the generally accepted rationale or explanation for the current state of affairs uh, that you just described briefly is, quote, uh, the polarization of wages in the 21st century United States accurately reflects the skills demanded by the new globalized high-tech economy. In other words, uh, the global economy made me do it. Um, you say this is the big lie. Why? Yeah, it, it's just uh, demonstrably false. Uh, if you look at other similar countries, whether in East Asia like Japan and Western Europe, uh, they've all been affected by globalization, just like the United States. But they haven't seen the collapse of worker bargaining power uh, in the extremes of inequality that you do in the U.S. So if globalization were the reason for this, we should see similar results in every other country. And we don't. The United States is unique in the degree to which uh, uh, we have wage polarization uh, and the collapse of uh, collective bargaining, the most important form of worker bargaining power. So, you know, as, as I mentioned, um, you write about the many practices uh, that employers use and are still using to bust unions or to keep them from rising again um, and to otherwise suppress, suppress wages. And these include the rigging of the rules of employment practices, what you call boss rule, um, engaging in what you call global labor arbitrage, which you've touched on both through outshoring jobs and through the importation and exploitation of uh, immigrant workers, and most recently through the full throttle adaptation ad uh, uh, of the so-called woke or diversity ideology. Um, this is just three, there's more, but um, let's take these one at a time. What are some of the examples of the bosses rigging the rules of the game? Well, in many jobs, when you sign a contract, there's a lot of fine print. And sometimes the fine print contains a non-compete clause where when you quit uh, and you, you find out that you signed this clause saying you would not compete for a rival of the company in the same industry. And the purpose of non-compete clauses in employment contracts is to prevent employers from threatening to go to other employers in the same field in order to bargain up their wages. The flip side of a non-compete uh, clause in a worker's contract is an illegal but widespread practice among employers. And those are so-called no poach agreements. So the employers secretly uh, collude with each other and they agree not to hire former employees of other employers. Well, that sounds weird. Why would they do that? Well, that's it's essentially it's an employer cartel in the same industry uh, so that they all collaborate to prevent any workers from uh, bargaining for higher wages with anybody in their industry. And as I point out in my book, Hell to Pay, uh, Silicon Valley and, and many other firms, Hollywood firm, uh, studios, engaged in this kind of anti-labor practice. And you know, in the 2000s and 2010s, they were caught and had to pay fines uh, by the Justice Department because this is blatantly illegal, but it's one of the methods where you, where you even, you don't have unions, but you just have single individuals uh, negotiating with employers. But even then, the enormous bargaining power that the average employer has with the average individual is, is not enough. The average private sector worker in the United States uh, works for a company with 500 people or more. Uh, so even in the absence of these contract clauses, 
it's ludicrous to say that a janitor, when seeking a job with a company that has 500,000 members, somehow is bargaining in any kind of equal basis. Okay, let, let's move on. I mean, there's others. For example, I mean, the way that that they rigged the rules, the, 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 the laws of, of unionization makes it very difficult for unions to be able to get a foothold in the, in the, in the company. And then once they do, it's almost, it takes forever to organize, but, uh, but, but go ahead. Well, no, as, as I argue in my book, Hell to Pay, uh, the U.S. labor system was flawed from its beginnings in the National Labor Relations Act uh, in the 1930s because it's based on enterprise bargaining. So what that means is if you have a company like Amazon uh, or, or Starbucks, you have to unionize every individual Amazon warehouse, every individual Starbucks uh, coffee house. Uh, this wasn't a big problem in the 1940s and 1950s because the labor law was written when you had the big three auto companies. You know, you had a few big steel companies. But now that we have lots of little tiny service sector uh, firms, it, it's just because of this, the, the flaws in the legislation itself. Uh, it's almost impossible to organize a lot of industries. And of course, uh, individual firms have an incentive not to do it under our enterprise bargaining system, because if they do unionize and they pay more in wages, yeah. And their prices go up. Yeah, that makes them less competitive. Right, right, so, so let's move on to the practice of, of offshoring jobs. There's a history to it. If you could quickly give us the history of how it happened and 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 how it was sold to Americans, something that was going to be good for this country. Well, there's the official history that it started in the 1990s, and uh, we were getting rid of old industries. But then the the veterans of these old industries would be retrained. Uh, they would learn to code. They would, you know, join the knowledge economy of the future and write software instead of making steel. That was the official story. Uh, the real story, as I argue in Hell to Pay, is that we've had two waves of what economists call labor arbitrage. That's where you move the same production from a high wage uh, area to a low wage area. And the first wave was within the United States itself. It was after World War II, up until the 90s when uh, companies shut down their plants in uh, the largely unionized states in the North and moved them to the right to work anti-labor states in the South and the West. And of course, New York state suffered enormously uh, from this migration of uh, manufacturing to the anti-union South. So if you think of this as labor arbitrage, the next step was simply going global after the Cold War. Uh, you know, So now instead of moving your factory from upstate New York, to Mississippi or, or Louisiana, you moved it to uh, South China or to Mexico. So this is so transparent. It was so transparent that, for example, Ross Perot was right that that something like NAFTA would suck uh, the jobs out of this country. Nevertheless, the argument was made and was believed by many that this was going to be a win-win situation. What was that argument? Well, the argument was that you would have what. Uh, in the Japanese at the time called the flying goose theory. That is, you have a lead goose and the other geese that follow it. You could also uh, call it the hand-me-down clothes theory. That is, as countries develop, as economies develop, they shed their old industries to uh, developing countries and then they're pioneering new industries. Uh, the problem with that is in the modern world where we have multinational corporations, even if 
some radically new industry is developed in the United States. The corporation that develops it, uh, you know, whether it's a startup or a giant corporation, can instantly license it to low-wage countries abroad like China or Mexico, or uh, they can uh, uh, create their own offshore affiliates. Mm -hmm. But the premise in the 90s, which turned out to be false, as many of us argued at the time, was that the U.S. would have all of these high-tech industries of the future, and the rest of the world would just be doing kind of old-fashioned, primitive mm -hmm. manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the other, uh, you say that the other form of global label arbitrage, the importation and exploitation of immigrant workers, should not be exaggerated. But you add that, quote, it would be intellectually dishonest to ignore the harm done. Give us some examples of the harm done. Well, when you read the uh, editorial pages of major newspapers, they will say things like economists have shown that immigration does not affect wages. That's not actually true. And I demonstrated it with, with abundant citation. There have been two uh, major studies by the National Academy of Sciences in 1996 and 2016. And they both conclude that uh, low wage immigration drives down wages for citizens, workers who are competing. Uh, you really have to go granular rather than making generalizations. Uh, and there are case studies showing how the availability of a large pool of uh, low-wage immigrant labor allowed meatpacking industry, for example, which was actually a high-paying middle-class unionized industry in the 50s and 60s in the Midwest. Uh, now it's one of the most squalid, poorly-paying industries in America. Uh, in uh, uh, the janitorial industry, uh, was largely African-American. Uh, it was unionized, paid good salaries uh, in California in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and that was destroyed. The unions were destroyed and wages were brought down because there was this large pool of uh, uh, workers to whom the jobs could be transferred. So uh, there's there, there are all kinds of immigration. There's humanitarian immigration. There's skilled immigration and so on. So I'm not arguing against immigration in general, but it is simply a fact that in certain industries, sure. construction's another, uh, uh, employers have weaponized immigration uh, in order to suppress wages and undermine unionization. Now, you write that in treating immigration as a matter of labor economics rather than as a racial justice issue, you are, quote, violating perhaps the greatest taboo of the bipartisan neoliberal regime that has ruled the United States since Reagan and Clinton. Now, I, I get what you mean, um, but isn't it the case that the strong antipathy towards uh, treating immigration as a matter of labor economics emerged, at least on the left, precisely because of the rise of nativist groups that were using the economic rationale uh, to bash immigration? Um, in, in other words, you know, you know, political groups who seem to have no problem with the destruction of the labor movement and no problem with uh, with the suppression of wages in any other form except through immigration. Well, there have always been nativists from the 1920s where we had this uh, racist quota system discriminating against Southern and Eastern Europeans uh, after all Asian immigration had been shut down earlier uh, to the 1950s with the you know various uh, racially exclusive immigration acts. But, but I don't think your argument makes sense, frankly. You're arguing that liberal economists knew that this harmed labor, uh, but they decided not to say this in public for fear of you know, helping Pat Buchanan. 
well, I, I don't think the history shows that. All the way up until the 1990s, uh, organized labor was more restrictionist than organized business for obvious reasons. The, the people pushing mass unskilled immigration were either agribusiness, you know, it was cheap labor industry, and it was libertarians. I think the real story is private sector labor unions, and I, I single out the AFL-CIO in my book, it's done many great things, but uh, the organized labor became such a powerless force in American politics that I think they're now dependent on the democratic coalition. Uh, they are a kind of a minor wing of one party rather than an independent force pursuing the interests of American private sector labor as a whole. So real quickly, let's talk about the uh, woke capitalism, so-called woke capitalism. You argue that, uh, that most recently uh, employers, at least the big corporations, are embracing um, the diversity ideology as a means to further erode workers' uh, wages and bargaining power. Um, how do they do that? Well, one way they do it uh, is they have employee affinity groups. Affinity means identity. So they'll they'll bring the employees together in the firm and say, we're going to separate you by race. I mean, they literally do this by race, by gender, by sexual orientation, and go talk in your little, little racial group or your gender group about how much you have in common with people of your own race, right? Or your own ethnic heritage uh, or your own you know sex or, or gender. Uh, now, what could be more blatant a form of divide and rule toward your workforce than that? Uh, the whole point of collective bargaining is to unite workers who share only one characteristic. They're working for the same employer. That's it. Doesn't matter their race, their gender, their religion, whatever. So, you know, I don't think it's paranoid to see this as a device by which management is making it more difficult uh, for people to uh, collaborate as employees across racial and ethnic and gender lines. Yeah. So, so moving on, one of the most interesting sections of your book of Hell to Pay is your discussion on welfare. You argue that welfare can either be pro-employer or pro-worker. What's the difference? Well, pro-worker pro welfare increases the bargaining power of the worker in selecting jobs. So for example, if you have longer periods of unemployment insurance, then you can hold out longer before you're so desperate uh, and you can wait for a better offer. If, if the period is very brief, then you have to take even a very bad job as quickly as possible because you're running out of money. And we saw this in the debate about the stimulus, as you may remember, where, where uh, members of Congress uh, like Lindsey Graham were arguing that uh, it was too generous and, and you know people aren't going back to work quickly enough. But all kinds of things, whether it's uh, child care provisions, the age of working, you know, one of one of the unspoken goals of entitlement reform, it's not that the U.S. is going bankrupt. We could fairly easily pay for Social Security with slightly higher payroll taxes or or other revenues. Uh, it's to have more workers competing for jobs in the labor market. If, if you uh, cut Social Security payments by pushing back the full retirement age to 70 or 75 or 80, uh, you can still retire early, but it's a, at a huge cut. So that way you have more old people working. Uh, so you know, one of the fascinating things to me writing this book was how ingenious 
the employer lobby is, and I distinguish the employer lobby from business. I'm a great fan of dynamic industrial capitalism, and I've been arguing for it my whole career. Uh, but uh, it's not dynamic industrial capitalism when you're competing not on the basis of new products or of increased productivity, but on nickel and diming your workers down to squeeze out a little more profit from lower wages. And of course, the bottom line is that the welfare as it exists in this in this country is basically subsidizing uh, corporations, as as you say, you know, the corporate you privatize the gains and and socialize uh, the costs. Well, we've had what I call uh, two separate systems since the 1930s. There was the high wage or living wage social insurance system, where if you worked 48 hour, 40 hours a week, you weren't poor. You didn't need means-tested welfare assistance. Uh, and now we have somewhere between a quarter and a fifth of the American workforce consists of the working poor. These are people they can work full-time jobs, 40 hours a week, and they are too poor to support themselves, much less uh, a family. Uh, and so, well, but we don't let them starve. We're a generous country. So we top up their inadequate private wages with welfare programs, with housing vouchers, with the earned income tax credit, with uh, uh, food stamps. Uh, and as I point out in my book, this is socializing the costs of low wages while privatizing the benefits. The benefits go to the employers and they go to some consumers whose prices are slightly lower. Uh, you and I, the taxpayer, are subsidizing the consumers of products and services yeah. uh, made by low wage workers, right. which you and I do not consume. Right. right. So, so let, let's move on for the for, for the sake of time, unfortunately. Uh, um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you believe that the suppression of wages is destroying the country uh, because or because it is worsening or, or perhaps even causing for other profoundly destructive crises, the demographic crises, the social crises, crisis, the identity crisis, and the political crisis. I, I know this is unfair in about five minutes or less. <laughs> could you could you explain uh, what these crises are and how they're linked to, to low wages? Well, the demographic crisis is the U.S. Uh, fertility rate is far too low to maintain the population without ever escalating immigration. Uh, and most parents say they want two or more children, but they end up having far Less, and the reason they give is they don't have the money. So, so uh, their incomes uh, are, are a barrier to having as many kids as they want. The uh, social crisis is the fact that young Americans have fewer friends than any generation in American history. And, and I argue that uh, certainly for working class young Americans, this is because it's very hard to make friends through the uh, workplace. Uh, if you are a gig worker, uh, unions used to have all kinds of social activities. So, so uh, the low wage economy contributes to social alienation. Uh, polarization, uh, as we saw earlier with the uh, employee affinity groups, uh, you're, basically you can use your identity status in struggling for openings and jobs uh, and promotions 
with your fellow workers. So it, it tends to be a divisive thing. And finally, political polarization. Here, I think it's the demise of organized labor as a bipartisan, nonpartisan force in American politics. It still exists in a vestigial form uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, but when organized labor was powerful, the parties had to deal with what most Americans say are their primary concerns, good wages, mm. good jobs, vacations, benefits, healthcare. Uh, as a result of the collapse of uh, labor unions, uh, the main influence on the political parties comes from college educated people. That's true the Democrats and the Republicans. They're materially well off uh, and they want to fight over culture war issues rather than bread and butter. Nobody represents the interests of the workers. So what is to be done? You dedicate about a third of the book to uh, policy proposals uh, to reverse these destructive trends. So this uh, destructive trend. Um, unfortunately, we only have about a couple of minutes left. Could you give us perhaps one of those policy proposals? I'll have to read the book for the rest that you think is absolutely key. Well, there's, there's no magic bullet for the entire economy. Uh, I think we need to concentrate on cleaning up the worst industries uh, first. Most of the low-wage jobs in the U.S. are in a few industries. It's in fast food, uh, leisure, retail, uh, and, and a few others, construction. Uh, and rather than try to unionize everybody in these fields, we can use a device which uh, uh, former Governor Andrew Cuomo revived in New York to deal with low wages and fast food. That's the wage board. Uh, where the governor or the mayor appoints representatives of labor, representatives of all of the firms in an industry, and they come up with minimum wages and benefits and scheduling rules for that particular low-wage industry. And the advantage of the wage board approach is the contract applies to everybody at the same time, so no individual firm is disadvantaged by doing the right thing. There are many other proposals, as I say, they're all fascinating. I really urge people to get the book, to, to look at them. So, Michael, what happens if the powers that be, who are very powerful, um, are successful in not allowing the necessary changes to happen? What happens then? And about a minute. Well, I think the U.S. becomes a third world country like Brazil or, or Mexico, where you have, you know, a very affluent oligarchy and, and enormous inequality and what we see in societies like that and it was true in the south between the civil war and the civil rights revolution is you don't get a left-right politics you get a politics of wealthy connected insiders and periodically you get demagogues like donald trump like uh bernie sanders on the left i'm using the demagogue in the technical sense you know somebody who's representing alienated uh people who feel betrayed by the system and if we don't want to have a constant clash between uh, an insider establishment and angry outsider demagogues, I think we need to rebuild the bargaining power of all American workers. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.